Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you and praise you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that this passage would diagnose what is wrong with us and give us hope for the cure that you have ordained. And Lord, we pray that you would make us those who are able to speak the truth to others and lead many to righteousness. Father, we pray that you would give us the joy of being the wise who win souls. Lord, we ask that that your word would inform all of our lives, that it would regulate our expectations, and that it would teach us what to hope for and how to hope for it. We love you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we commit all these things to you in his name. Amen. When I was 12 years old, uh, I had played through a Little League baseball season, and we were to the the all-star sequence, and we played our first all-star game, and things, things went well, and, and then that night, I noticed that my knee was itching, and so I remember going to bed that night, and, and I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you've had this experience, you, you scratch, and you scratch, and you scratch, and the itch won't go away, and I was just scratching away at my knee, and then I woke up the next morning, and running up my knee, up, up to my waist, was this dark purple vein that was now visible. It had not been visible the night before, but now there was something wrong. And, and I'm looking at my leg, and it's no longer itching. Now it's hurting. Hurting, and I can't really bend my, my leg, and I'm, I'm really concerned about this because I'm really eager to play baseball again. And I did not know what was wrong with me. My parents, they, they took me to a doctor. The doctor took one look at my leg, And he said something like, he must have been bit by a spider or something. And then he wrote out a prescription, and I started taking the medicine, and it all went away. Praise God for people that know what they're doing. And and I was able to play baseball. I mean, it was so fast the way that medicine worked. Uh, Maybe maybe you've had the experience of, of feeling that something is wrong and not knowing quite what it is. And as we look at this passage today, I would invite you to open uh, in the Bible to Genesis chapter 3. I hope that this passage will be for us one of these aha moments where we realize, oh, this is what's wrong. This is what's going on. And I hope, too, that the the medicine of God's Word, it's not going to bring immediate healing. That'll await uh, the return of the Lord Jesus and the resurrection of our bodies. Uh, It's not going to bring immediate healing, but it can regulate our expectations so that we begin to know and recognize this isn't the Garden of Eden, and none of us should expect perfection. We've been looking together at at Genesis 3 for a few weeks now, and last week we saw what the Lord said to the serpent after the man and the woman sinned, and we saw the way that the Lord said those words to the serpent in verse 14, cursed are you. And as we continue in this passage, he is not going to say those words to either the woman or the man. God will not curse the woman or the man the way that he cursed the serpent. Um, And and last time, we also looked at Genesis 3.15, where the Lord said to the serpent that he was going to put enmity between him, the serpent, and the woman, and between his seed and 
and her seed. And we talked about the way that, that the man and the woman were expecting to die because they had eaten of the tree. And the prohibition was, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But then they hear, hear these words that there's going to be enmity, lasting conflict, and that their seed is going to triumph over the serpent. And so the, there, there are going to be three, I think there are three broad categories of difficulty that are introduced by God's words of judgment here. And the first broad category of, of judgment that is introduced in Genesis 3.15 is enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And, and I don't want to spend a long time on this. I, I just want to um, hopefully provide this as something that would explain your life. Um, la last night, Jill and I, our family, we watched, uh, the, the older kids, uh, we watched the Tortured for Christ movie that was released yesterday because on uh, February 29th, 1948, Richard Wormbrandt was arrested and, and uh, put in, into prison in Romania. And then he suffered for 14 years in prison. And as we watched those, those, uh, that account of the way that the communists tried to make this Lutheran pastor deny the faith, at one point, Jill looked at me and she said, I guess the only thing that explains this, this is the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The cruelty, the malice, the evil is otherwise inexplicable. And she's exactly right. In all of your life, you will have this experience. You come into a situation and you're trying to love people. You're trying to communicate them, to them the good news of a God who loves them. And their response to you will be something like this. Why are you judging me? You're such a horrible person. You're so harmful. And, and your response is bewilderment. I'm trying to tell you the best news that I know about a God who loves you. But there is this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And, and you know, when you, when you think about the career of the Lord Jesus, when you think about the fact that that this man who never did anything wrong, he never did anything but help people and heal people and, and love people, and they crucified him. There's this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Jesus said to his followers, as they treated me, so they will treat you. So if you're a believer here this morning, and you've been bewildered by the response of unbelievers, Genesis 3.15 explains the response there is enmity between those who, who act like the serpent and those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus. And that enmity is going to continue. Uh, that enmity, you can see it all the way across the book of Genesis. Uh, the Lord tells uh, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless those who bless you. And then all, and, and anyone who dishonors you, I will curse him. And all across the book of Genesis, Abraham's going to have difficulty with the Philistines. Uh, there, the, there's going to be a king who seizes his wife. Pharaoh is going to do this to him. And then Isaac is going to have the same kind of difficulties with the Philistines. Isaac's wife is going to be seized. And then it's going to continue into the life of Jacob as, um, as, as there, there's, a, there's a young man named Shechem who rapes one of Jacob's daughters, and then Jacob's own sons are going to start treating uh, Joseph this way. They're going to sell him into slavery, and we see this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent all across the book of Genesis. And that brings us to the word of judgment that the Lord says to the woman. And I, I, I deliberately did not say the words of curse 
that the Lord says to the woman because he doesn't curse the woman, although he does judge her. And you'll remember, as we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, that there, there are kind of two things that, that we can see that the woman was created to do in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, she's to be fruitful and multiply with the man. And then in Genesis 2, verse 18, uh, she's to be a help, a help meet suitable, so to speak, or a, a helper for the man who's, who's fit for him. And those two things that the text deliberately says she's created to do, those are the two areas in which the judgment is going to be spoken. So verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So Genesis 1.28, she's to be fruitful and multiply with the man. Because of sin, that whole process is made painful. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. You, you, could, you could render this, I will surely multiply your pain in conception. And if you render it that way, I think it, it broadens it out to not just the process of giving birth. In fact, I, I think the, the rest of the book of, of Genesis indicates that what Moses wants to show here is that there are going to be problems that accompany reproduction. The whole process of human reproduction is made, it, well, it's judged. It's made more difficult. It's, it's clouded. It's like the waters are all muddied as a result of human sin and then God's word of judgment over human sin. So in Genesis 11, verse 30, we're going to read that Sarah is barren. I think that's an outworking of Genesis 3, 16, the first part of the verse. It's, it's pain in in childbearing or multiplied pain in, in conception. In Genesis 25, 21, we read that Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, is also barren. Same thing. And then in Genesis 29, verse 31, Rachel is barren. And then a few chapters later, Rachel actually dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. So pain is multiplied for the woman in that part of her, her childbearing or her, her created responsibility. Now, I know that not every woman here is going to get married or have children, and yet I think this still touches you, the multiplied uh, pain in childbearing, the, the difficulty in reproduction. I mean, I think in part this could explain why it is that maybe some people don't get married who want to. I think also that across the book of Genesis, uh, we see sexual perversity. And that sexual perversity, I would submit, also stems from multiplied pain in conception, childbearing, and, and in, in bringing forth children in pain. So let me just give you a, a couple of instances of this. Uh, there's, there's perversity in Genesis 19 in Sodom. And, and all the, the, the distorted ideas about about how humans are to conduct themselves with respect to sexual intimacy, that distortion arises from Genesis 3.16. There's perversity that, that takes place once Lot and his daughters leave Sodom. We'll come back to that in a moment. There's perversity, as I mentioned, in the rape of Dinah. And there's perversity in what we see going on with Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. And with the way that Potiphar's wife responds to Joseph. I think all of this, this, these reproductive problems arise from the first part of Genesis 
And then we, we read on here, the second part of the verse, the Lord tells the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Uh, there, there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of comment on what kind of desire we're talking about here. This particular word for desire only occurs three times in the whole of the Bible, the whole of the Old Testament. The first instance is right here in Genesis 3.16. The second is in Genesis 4.7. And actually, the two terms desire and rule also occur in Genesis 4.7. And I think that Genesis 4.7 is key to understanding the second part of Genesis 3.16. So Genesis 4-7, the Lord tells Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Um, before, before we think more deeply about that, let me just give you the third instance of this word desire. It's over in the Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10, where the woman says, I am my beloved and he is mine. His desire is for me. And, and it's like what happens there is that what was put wrong in Genesis 3.16 is put right in this glorious relationship that we see in, in the Song of Songs. So let's think about the way that sin desires Cain, and I think that this will shed light on the way that the woman desires her husband. Sin desires Cain in that it wants to dictate his behavior. It wants to control his actions. And then Cain is going to need to rule over sin with a zero tolerance, take no prisoners brutality. If he leaves any room for sin in his life, it's going to dominate him. And, and I think that that informs Genesis 3.16 where now instead of wanting to help the, the man, instead of wanting to, uh, to cooperate with him and to be a help meet for him, now her desire is going to be to dictate his behavior, to control his actions, to be the one who is exercising leadership in the relationship, and he shall rule over you. He's going to respond with brutality, with force, with, with excess hostility, and it's going to be ugly. And, and all you have to do is think about the history of relations between men and women and it's a, it's, a story, it's a sad story of, of brutality and of dysfunction. Men have been abusing women since these words were spoken under the judgment of God. That, that's what's happened. We, we went from a situation where in the Garden of Eden, the man was, was to lead and provide and protect to a situation where now the woman wants to lead and the man doesn't protect the man abuses. That's bound up there in the words of judgment. And let's just think again about what flows out of this from the book of Genesis. One, one instance of this, of the woman wanting to, to take control, and then the man responding with, with brutal uh, force, is, is that plan that Sarah concocted. You know, the Lord promises to Abraham I'm going to make a great nation of you. And some, some chapters go by, some years go by, and they have no children. And Sarah says, I've got an idea. Go into my servant Hagar. And, and so they do this, 
And then Sarah's not happy about it at all. It's a bad situation when Ishmael is born and Sarah wants that woman put away. And so Abraham says, do whatever you want to do. And they drive that woman out. So it's, it's a perfect illustration of the woman seizing control and then the man responding with this, this rule that is harsh and, and unhelpful. We can also think of the plan, I mentioned this a moment ago, the plan that Lot's daughters came up with. Once, once they're delivered from Sodom and Sodom is destroyed and his daughters come up with that awful plan to make their father drunk and then have children by him. We can think of, of Potiphar's wife thinking that she would enjoy Joseph. We can think of Tamar deciding that she would, she would disguise herself as a prostitute and, and thereby ensnare her father-in-law. This, is, this never, never works out well in the book of Genesis. So I spoke about a diagnosis a moment ago. I, I know that, that there are reproductive problems and difficulties. I know that there are perverse desires. I know that there are, there are challenges that we all face. And this verse is telling us what is wrong. It's also in a passage that tells us where our hope is. So let's just be really clear. None of us lives in the Garden of Eden. And none of us is going to live in the Garden of Eden until Christ returns and brings in the new Jerusalem. And things are going to be different on the other side of that. So we all need to regulate our expectations and recognize we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is under the judgment of God. We live in a, in a world that, as Paul says, has been subjected to futility. So, so the, the people that are going to be most unhappy in life are the people who don't, they don't know what's wrong. They don't know why it's wrong. And they think that if they can just approach things in the right way, it will be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. Not this side of glory. It's never going to be perfect. You can have great joy if you learn to be content with God's goodness to you. I think we can also see that the Bible teaches that what, what happens here is, is the roles are distorted. And, and so one, one approach to finding joy and gladness in this fallen world is to em, embrace the roles for which we were created, to, for, for, for women to embrace motherhood and to embrace the role of, of being a helper. And women, women can do that and find joy in it, even if they never marry, even if they never bear children, because it, it's, a, it's a, an approach to life as a female pursuing femininity and, and, and seeking to carry out what God has created you to do. So by God's grace, those who know where Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in the cross of Jesus and his death and resurrection, we can, we can experience God's blessing in spite of the curse that is spoken there in Genesis 3.16. And then again, across the book of Genesis, in spite of the curse, God blesses. Sarah's barren. God blesses Abraham and Sarah with, with Isaac. And yes, their relationship is clouded. It's made difficult, but they're able to get along enough to be fruitful and multiply and have Isaac and experience God's blessing in that. And that brings us to what the Lord says 
to the man in Genesis 3, 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. This is, this is really an interesting statement because often in Hebrew, the word listen, in, in some contexts, it can also be rendered obeyed. And, and what that suggests is Adam didn't listen to the voice of God. Adam didn't obey the commands of God. Instead, he listened to the voice of his wife and he obeyed what the wife said, which again, that's already bringing in, into view what we just read about in 316. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, referring back to the command of Genesis 2.17, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. I just want to pause here for just a moment and say, every famine that you read about in the book of Genesis, there are famines in Genesis 12, in Genesis 26, and another one in Genesis 41. Every famine that you read about in the book of Genesis is stemming from Genesis 3, 17 through 19. The flood... The fact that creation no longer doesn't cooperate, but actually rises up to destroy all human beings at the flood except those delivered by God on the ark. The flood is an outworking of Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And, and so I would say that I think the words of curse here that pertain to creation, this is going to result in earthquakes and tsunamis and all manner of what the insurance uh, agents used to refer to as acts of God, lightning strikes, tornadoes, all the ways that people die as a result of avalanches, mudslides, floods, all these ways that people are swept away and their lives are ended. Stemming from Genesis 3, 17, cursed is the ground because of you. And I think Paul has this in particular in mind in Romans 8 when he says that creation was subjected to futility, futility always connoting death in the Bible. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So he's eaten of the forbidden tree, and now he's going to eat in pain. And he was in the Garden of Eden. He's going to be driven out of that garden into a cursed land. And then he's told in verse 18, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. The, man's, the woman has two stated things that she's created to do, be fruitful and multiply, help the man. The man has two created things that he's stated to do, uh, be fruitful and multiply with the woman, work and keep the garden. Well, he no longer gets to work and keep, and keep the garden. He's driven out of the garden, and we've already touched on the reproductive difficulty there in 316. And so now instead of this garden that just bears all this glorious fruit, now he's facing Genesis 3.18, thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man is going to have a painful life. Painful toil until he dies. So again, we, we need a diagnosis here, don't we? Here's your diagnosis. You should not expect your job to be perfect and glorious all the time. 
You should not expect it always to be easy, always to be something that you're excited about doing, always something where everything falls into place for you and, and, and everything just springs up and flourishes all around. No, you shouldn't expect that. You should expect the word of judgment to result in you experiencing the curse on the land. You should expect futility. You should expect sometimes to feel like, I do not want to do this today. And when you experience that, you're experiencing Genesis 3, 17. You should expect things to go haywire on you. I mean, the, you, you've had the experience. You're in a hurry. You're trying to get the machine to work. And however it looks on your screen, that little thing, the little rainbow is just sitting there spinning. This is great. This is just what I need right now. This is blessing my soul. Or for whatever reason, you know, the, the, the network or whatever, the technology just doesn't work for you. And, and all of a sudden, you spend your morning, instead of being productive doing what you want to do, you spend your morning trying to figure out what's wrong with this awful machine that you have to deal with. Or trying to figure out how to put new toner into the printer, or whatever the case may be. You should expect futility. You should, expect futi you should not expect to live in the Garden of Eden. We don't live in the Garden of Eden. So we need to be realistic. And, and you know what this passage enables us to do? So let me, let me just summarize. Uh, area of conflict number one, enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Area of conflict number two, between male and female. Between man and woman. Between husband and and wife. And then area of conflict number three, between you, whether you're male or female, and creation. I think that's going to explain every problem in one way or another in your life. God's words of judgment touch every difficulty that we face. Whether it's enmity between us as believers and those who don't believe, or difficulty that we're having with people of the opposite sex, or difficulty that we're having with the created world. And I would go so far as to say that every if you're a married person in the room, every, every marital difficulty that you've had in your life stems from Genesis 3.16. Every problem with creation that you've ever had in your life, whether it was you got frostbit or you were out in the cold and too long and you got wet and you got sick, every problem in your life that stems from creation, Genesis 3.17 through 19, creation has been subjected to futility. So there's enmity between the seeds, Genesis 3, 15. But it's God's word that's going to give hope in spite of that. God's word about the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, 15. And as we continue across the narrative of Genesis, what we're going to see is that the Lord is going to say to Abraham, he's going to say, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And anyone who dishonors you, I'll curse him. And then he goes on, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So it's like God's word of blessing to Abraham is a direct answer to his word of judgment in the, in the form of the enmity between the seeds. So what I'm proposing to you here is that if Genesis 3, 14 through 19 is paradigmatic for everything that's wrong in the world, Genesis, 3, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is providing us with God's blessing that answers what's wrong with the world. So enmity between the seas is going to be answered by the blessing that God promises to Abraham. The conflict between the man and the woman, 
The, the, the multiplied pain in childbearing, the desire that she feels for the man and, and him ruling over her. Well, the Lord says to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, which means children. And then a few verses later, he says, and to your seed, I'm going to give this land. So the Lord promises seed to Abraham, which means that, yes, there's difficulty between man and woman. But that's not going to stop God from accomplishing his purposes. Even with a barren woman, God is going to make them able to be fruitful and multiply. So the promise of seed, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, which as you, as you continue across the book of Genesis, this grows into the seed of Abraham, and then eventually the seed of Judah. And then we read uh, Psalm 18 at the start of the service today because of the way that it speaks of David and his seed, his offspring. So the seed of David, that line of descent is going to culminate in the Lord Jesus and that's God's, that's God's way of saying that conflict between the man and the woman is not going to have the last word. The, perverse, the, the reproductive difficulty and the sexual perversity and even, even the, the desire of the woman and the harshness of the man, that's not going to have the last word. I am going to overcome all this through the seed that's going to arise. And then creation is cursed. And God's response to that is to say to Abraham, I'm going to give you land. And it's very interesting how, as you trace this across the, Bible, across the Bible, the Lord says to Abraham there in Genesis 12, 7, to your seed I will give this land. And then Paul is talking in, uh, in Romans 4 about how Abraham, by faith, became an heir of the world. It's like what the Lord is saying is, that land of Palestine that I'm promising to you, that's just the beachhead. That's like the beaches of Normandy. We're going to storm that place. We're going to take that place. And then my glory is going to spread from there over all the dry lands. And you are going to inherit the world, Abraham. So there's enmity between the seeds, but there's God's promise of blessing to Abraham. There's conflict between the man and the woman, but there's still the promise that they're going to bear seed. The woman's going to have seed, and the seed's going to bruise the head of the serpent. And creation is cursed, but land is promised to Abraham, a promise that's going to be realized in the new heavens and new earth, when all things are made new, when the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven, as John read this morning. So as a word of application here, I want to encourage you not to expect things to be perfect in your life. And I want to encourage you that when you experience these curses, we should train our minds for our first thought to be, well, God has diagnosed the problem. God has explained to me what's wrong. And God has promised to fix these problems. God has promised to fix these problems. We, we should not look to ourselves to fix these problems. We should not look to, to anything less than what God has said he will do and what God has provided to us for us to overcome these things. And then secondly, look at how Adam, that's your first application. Look at how Adam responds in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. And I mentioned this last week. Uh, the word Eve in Hebrew, chava, sounds very similar to the word life in Hebrew, chaya. And Adam seems to be responding directly to the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And and so commentators will refer to this as Adam's act of faith. Adam is responding to the word of God. 
We could say faith came by hearing. He, he heard what God said to the serpent and faith awoke in his heart. Faith came by hearing and hearing by the word of, Paul says, Christ. We can say the word of the seed of the woman, which is Christ. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And I want to say, respond the same way. Respond the same way. Believe in the promise that God has made about the seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. He's done it in Christ. As Jesus in John 12 is going to the cross, he says the words, now is the ruler of this world cast out. It's like Satan has been defanged. In Revelation 12, there's this picture of Michael the archangel throwing Satan out of heaven. It's as though Satan can no longer do what he was doing in the opening chapters of Job when he's accusing the servant of God before the throne of God. He can no longer do what he was doing in Zechariah 3 when he's accusing the high priest Joshua for wearing those filthy robes. Revelation 12.10 says, Rejoice, O heavens, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He's got no more standing in the heavenly court. His accusations, if you're a believer in Jesus, his accusations are not being heard by the Father, the judge. If you're a believer in Jesus, Satan's words of accusation against you have no standing before the throne of God. Jesus has thrown him out. So believe. Believe and hope in Christ and what he's accomplished. We want to imitate Adam's response of faith. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. There are very interesting uh, things here. If you look up this word garments, this particular Hebrew word, and you trace it across, you'll find that this is the word is first used to describe the, the coat that Joseph's father, but then it starts getting used for the tunics and the coats that are made for the priests that the high priest is going to wear. And that's where this word is most used later on, in, in the, in particularly in the Pentateuch. And then you look up this word clothed, and what you find is that Moses was instructed to clothe Aaron and his sons with these garments. So there are strong priestly overtones here. And then as has been often pointed out, these are garments of skin, garments of, of like uh, the, the flesh of an animal. So, so it do, the text doesn't spell it out directly. The text doesn't explicitly say there was a sacrifice made. And then from that sacrifice, Adam and his wife, Eve, were clothed like the priests were clothed with garments like the priests would wear. But I think there's a connotation of sacrifice here in the fact that these, these are garments of skin. And the fact that this is language that's associated later with the way the priests are clothed and, and the coats that the priests would wear just adds to the connotations of, of, of Eden be, being like a temple. And of now that there's been sin, there's going to need to be sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice that God has provided. And then God has clothed the man and the woman to cover their shame. So in response to this, I want to say that we should trust God's provision. We should trust there is no righteousness to be clothed with like the righteousness of Christ. All your good deeds, all your efforts, all your attempts, you will never clothe yourself like God can clothe you with righteousness. 
So, you know, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer, what we want for you is the best thing that we have to offer you. We want you to know the hope that comes from understanding the problem and knowing that God has promised a solution. And, and that hope is ultimately realized in Christ, whose death on the cross pays the penalty for our sin and whose righteousness is what God clothes us with. And the New Testament regularly says that, that Christ has made his people into a kingdom and priests. So, so because of what Christ has done, we can mediate the knowledge of God. We can lead people to worship God the way that the Old Testament priests did. And then we continue here, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Satan had promised this. God knows that, that in, the, in the day you eat of it, uh, you will become like God. Well, they were already like God in the ways that mattered. Now they're like God in ways that they shouldn't be like God. He didn't want them to be this way, at least not in this way at this time. The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, and then we read of how they're driven out. This doesn't mean that God knows good and evil from experience. God is altogether holy. He's never done evil. But the man and his woman now have an experiential knowledge that makes it where God is not going to allow them to have access to the tree of life. That's what we read about in the next verse. I would invite you to look back at 2.16, where the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And then in verse 17, he forbids the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This seems to indicate that the tree of life was not off limits to them. But now that they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God doesn't want them to have access to that tree of life. Maybe I'm just under the influence of J.R.R. Tolkien here, uh, but it seems to me that this is because God is, is mercifully keeping the man and the woman from continuing forever in their defiled and sinful state. So that even in this justice of them being forbidden access to the tree of life and driven out of the garden, even here there's, there's mercy. It's mercy that's going gonna, gonna to take a long time to, to, to spring up, but it's mercy. It's mercy that's ultimately going to result in them, in us, all people who, who hope in God and trust in Christ, experiencing an eternal life free from the sinful condition. And then the last statements of the chapter, verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Uh, this is language that's reminiscent of 2.15 and, and 2.6, before there was man to work the ground. He drove the man out, verse 24, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim. So it seems that the garden is entered from the east, and it seems now that the entrance is going to be guarded by these cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, these, are, these are elements, the fact that the garden is entered from the, the east and that it's guarded by the cherubim that are going to correspond to the tabernacle. Um, the tabernacle is also going to be entered from the east, and there are going to be these cherubim that are worked into the, the decorations of the tabernacle. It's also interesting, too, that as Balaam approaches 
the camp of Israel, and they've built the tabernacle by that point, and God has taken up residence within them. As Balaam approaches uh, the camp of Israel, do you remember what he encounters? He encounters an angel with a drawn sword. It's almost as though as Israel has come out of Egypt and they've built the tabernacle and God has taken up residence within them, it's almost as though they're a new Eden. And this, this pagan prophet from the east is, is, is approaching the entrance to the dwelling place of God. And then you remember Joshua. As Joshua crosses the Jordan and enters the land of promise, he encounters this captain of the Lord's hosts with a drawn sword in his hand. And he's told to remove his sandals for the ground is holy. It's almost as though Joshua is approaching the dwelling place of God as he enters into the land. And then, of course, the temple will have those cherubim worked into them, and it too will be entered from the east. What does this tell us? It tells us that we were made for the holy place. We were built to experience the presence of God. And the dissatisfaction that in some ways I've been talking about this whole sermon, the marriage problems, the enmity between the seeds, the conflict, with our dissatisfaction with that and our desire for things to be perfect, it actually reflects that this defiled world is not our destination. It's not what we were made for. But the Bible is teaching us that our destination is not perfection here and now, but the resurrection and the new Jerusalem. And those hopes will make us wise unto salvation. Those hopes will enable us to bear up under the afflictions of this life. Those hopes will keep us from having unrealistic expectations about how unbelievers might respond to us, about how our spouse might respond to us or about how we might be able to have this idealistic relationship with people of the opposite sex and or about how we might think we can avoid forest fires or uh, people drowning at sea or any number of other ways that people die as a result of creation being subjected to futility. This text can make us wise unto salvation. This text can inform our hopes and those who hope in Christ will not be put to shame because the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts as an expression of the love of God, resulting in the love of God. So that, as Paul puts it in Romans 5, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, the new Jerusalem, the resurrection, so that we can even boast in the midst of our tribulation and affliction. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so good to us. And Lord, we thank you for this word, this passage that explains what's wrong in the book of Genesis, what's wrong with the world at large, what's wrong with us. And it explains to us, Lord, why our experience has gone the way it has. And Father, I pray that you would cause us to, to be like the men of Issachar, who understood the scriptures and who understood the times. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage and joy as we proclaim your truth and as we announce the hope that, that you cause, that you inform, that you create when you speak these words of promise about this seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head. 
Lord, help us to hope fully in Jesus and help us to see how the whole Old Testament points forward to what he would do. And Lord, make us those who long for his appearing. Make us faithful, we pray, to indiscriminately sow the seed of the gospel, to announce it at every opportunity. Lord, I pray that you would place upon our hearts the people that you want us to rip off this invitation and give, give it to, the people whose names we'll then write on the other half of this invitation. And Lord, I pray that you'd bring those people here, that they would hear your life-giving word, your life-giving, life-informing word, and that they would turn to you and be saved. And Lord, we ask that by your grace, your promise of blessing would overcome the effects of the judgment in our lives as much as possible until you make all things new. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.